you have been called. Before the foundations of the earth, you were chosen by the Father to be adopted through the Son and sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been called, church, for by grace you've been saved through faith. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be known, called. We've been called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Now we seek to think differently, live honorably, care compassionately, serve selflessly, and love unconditionally that the world might see Jesus in us. Each and every one of us are called. And so, church, let us be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Let us put on the whole armor of God that we can stand against the schemes of the devil and all that would seek to distract us from the mission that is before us. You have been called. We have been called. May we, the church, be forever united in this truth. We have been called. Hey, we've been called. Awesome, right? God is calling to us. And so this morning, we're going to continue our series through the book of Ephesians uh, that we have uh, called, called. And uh, looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, if you're joining us online, uh, welcome this morning. If you're joining us from the Myerstown campus, love you greatly, and uh, so glad that you're a part of things here today. Um, my name is Pastor Nate, and I serve as one of the pastors on staff here at Mission Church. Uh, Pastor Jerry asked me to preach this week. Uh, he was uh, actually involved in some Great Commission collective business earlier this week. He was traveling a bunch uh, and then uh, uh, busy around pre preparing for Easter and then an opportunity to spend uh, an overnight with his boys. And so he'll be back at Night of Worship tonight, and he'll be back preaching next week as well. Um, but today it's my duty to bring you God's Word. And so let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 23 here this morning. And I want to just begin by praying because this is a prayer. And so let's pray the prayer that Paul has prayed as well. I know we just prayed, but is it, is it ever too much praying that we could do, right? I don't think so. So bow your heads with me. Let's, let's pray together here this morning. Heavenly Father, we come here today and we recognize that we are going to study a prayer. Lord, this prayer is one that has been recorded and inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we would know the content of it. Uh, Lord, we know that it's more than just the content. It's so, so that we would pray it as well. And so, Lord, we pray today. For believers, those who have a solid trust in the master Jesus and who have an outpouring of love to all the other followers of Jesus, Lord, we can't stop thanking you for them as we pray. And Lord, as we pray this morning, we ask that the God of our master Jesus Christ, the God of glory, would make us intelligent and discerning to know him personally, that, the eyes, that our eyes would be focused and clear so that we can see exactly what it is that he's calling us to do and grasp the immensity of his glorious way of life he has for us, his followers. Lord, show us the utter extravagance of your work in us who trust in you, the endless energy and boundless strength. Lord, we know all this energy issues from Jesus Christ. You raised him from the dead and you set him on the throne in deep heaven and put him in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. 
Lord Jesus is in charge of all. We recognize that. He has the final word on everything. And at the center of all of this, Christ is ruling the church. The church is not just peripheral to the world, but the world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. God, would you impress upon us these truths of what you have called us to today. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. So we are called to comprehend is the title of the message here today. We are called to comprehend something and that the Lord wants, us, wants to show us. And when we think about comprehending something, what part of the body, point to what part of your body you comprehend with. Go ahead, point to it, right? And so we point to our heads, and, and yet many times, or, or sometimes, we find that there are people who are outside of the faith who think that we don't use our heads. We think, they think that this, this thing that we believe in Jesus about is really not a head thing, it's just some of emotional type of thing, and, and it's not for those who actually think clearly and deeply, it's not for the intellectual. Sometimes the Christian faith is charged to be anti-intellectual, in fact. And so I read a story once about a preacher who prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, I thank you for my ignorance and pray that you'll make me more ignorant. To what one dear sister in the congregation whispered, I think that prayer was answered before it was prayed. The fact is, our faith is not an intellectual faith. Uh, When we put our trust in Jesus Christ and become a believer of him, it's not that we stop using our head. It's that we begin to use something beyond that as well. Christianity is not an anti-intellectual, and actually it's a fool who actually believes that. When somebody says... Your faith, that faith thing that you do is anti-intellectual. It just helps me understand they don't really know God and how to walk with him. I mean, is that what you've experienced? Do you think that this faith walk with God is an anti-intellectual thing? Has that been uh, the way that it has unfolded for you? I doubt that. I doubt that to be true at all. Because God wants us to know him and he's given us our mental faculties and our intelligence as part of the method for what he's trying to do in getting to know him. And so when we find here today that God is calling us to know him, which is really at the heart of this prayer, that God wants us to know him, we can see that we need to pursue a wholehearted understanding of God and his ways. That when Paul prays for the Ephesians to have the knowledge of God, we, we see that he's praying for our intellects to be engaged, but not just our intellects, because intellect leads to intimacy. And so we're called to comprehend. That, that's what we're going to look at here today in this particular section of Scripture, to, to comprehend our calling that God has placed on our life. So we need to understand the word comprehend a little bit then, right? I think you probably get a little bit of a direction of where it's going. I went to the dictionary and found that it says that to comprehend means to grasp the nature of or the meaning of. It's to understand and appreciate. 
So we are supposed to grasp the nature of something and the meaning of and to understand and to appreciate this. The Greek word, the definition there literally means to grasp mentally and to seize completely. And so we find here that this word comprehend is actually pretty high in the ranking of order of knowledge. We see here that it's not just the facts of what's going on, it's something beyond that. It's kind of like you can know the facts, but you can't, re- maybe you're missing understanding and knowledge of what's going on. You can read a handbook without completely under- understanding and comprehending the purpose of it. And so we're trying to get beyond that into something, beyond, uh, into something further that Paul has prayed for the Ephesian believers to have and what I believe the Holy Spirit wants all of us who are believers to have here today. Now, we've been doing this series through Ephesians, and uh, we understand that really at the center of this idea of calling is the fact that Paul, the apostle, was called to reveal a mystery, something that wasn't known previously, to, uh, to the world. And that calling was to reveal the mystery of the church. And he tells us in chapter 3, verse 7 to 10, he says this. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, that's the mystery, through the church, the manifold, the many facets of God's wisdom might be now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, this book of the Bible was originally written as a letter to a group of churches in Ephesus. And and it was meant to be passed around these churches so that they would all understand the calling that Paul had to reveal the calling that all of us have to be a part of the church. And so Paul has written here, and before he unpacks all of that, he prays that we would understand God and his calling on on our lives. And Paul writes, chapter 1, when we preached through the first couple of verses, we told you that from verse 3 to verse 14 is one long run-on sentence in uh, in the original language. And guess what? We have another long run-on sentence, verses 15 to 23. It's all one complete thought, and we're going to get to dive into it today. Buckle your seatbelts. You don't need lunch. Okay, I'll work to get you done before lunch, okay? And we get to see this amazing passage here today that Paul wrote while he was in prison, at least four years after he had ministered among the church. And he finally, after starting to write and having to pause to explode in praise for the spiritual blessings that we have been given, finally gets to the way he normally writes a letter and thanks the recipients for receiving the letter and begins to show them what he wants to teach them through it. So let's read it together. Verse 15 here this morning. Get your eyes on some scripture here, whatever kind of Bible you have. And let's just read through this one long sentence. Paul says this, for this reason, it could be pointing backwards, but it's actually pointing forward. It's actually kind of going both. The reason is both ways, the spiritual blessings and then the things that he next says, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints. For that reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I pray all the time for you. And when I pray for you, I, I remember when I 
pray, I pray for you in this way. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you two gifts, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That's the core of his prayer, that you would have a knowledge of the glorious Father. 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to what he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and thirdly, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Then describes that might, that he, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over, the, over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul writes here and he says, I want you to know something, not just something, I want you to know someone. And I have to pray for it because you can't get it without this prayer. And so we need to understand what is Paul praying for so that we can have this same knowledge that he's talking about here today. And we see here that, that this knowledge of God is what he's talking about. Do you know God? How well do you know God? And it would, would it be helpful if someone prayed for you to know God better? Well, that's what we're trying to do here today, to learn how to pray in this way. We're called to comprehend. Ask me, what should we comprehend? Ask what? Go ahead, shout it out. What? Comprehend what? Well, we want to comprehend the fact that knowing is something more than just facts. Facts are important, but the, it's not merely intellectual things that we want to know. Paul prays that we would intellectually grasp something completely so that we uh, would have our heads influence our hearts. Write this down, number one, this morning. We are called to comprehend that God calls you to know him intimately. That, that's what Paul is trying to get to right at the middle of this particular passage. He's trying to pray in a way that helps you to know God intimately and know that God wants that. He's not a distant God who is just out there and set things in order. He wants to have a personal and intimate relationship with you. That's what Paul's trying to help you understand here, first of all, this morning. Notice that he begins by giving thanks to them in verses 15 and 16. He says, for this reason, what reason? The reason is because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. What, what he says is because I've heard of the classic marks of what a Christian is, I'm going to give thanks to God for you and for the work that he's done in saving you. Did you hear that? Do you know what the classic marks of a Christian are? Their, their, their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for other believers. First John actually helps us understand this. It's all over the pages of scripture, but 1 John 3 verse 23 says, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, his son, and two, love one another as he has commanded us. The two marks of genuine Christianity are that you believe in Jesus and that you love other believers. And Paul says, I see that in you. And so I thank God for you because I see that real genuine classic mark that you are a Christian. 
This evidence of belief causes Paul to thank God for them. So I thought it would be appropriate. Why don't you turn to your neighbor right now and say to, say to them, I thank God for his saving work in you. Go ahead. Tell the person next to you. Paul wants, to be encur- wants the church to be encouraged by these marks being evident and seen. You should be encouraged that people see that in you. And, and, but, but I also recognize that that exercise might have caused you to squirm a little bit too. Because it's possible you might have been like, ah, I'm here today, I want to hear the things of the church and stuff, but I'm not really a believer. I don't really believe in Jesus yet. I don't really have a love for other Christians yet. Not the way they talk about it in the Bible. And I would just say, if that made you a little bit uncomfortable, praise God. Like That's him trying to alert you to your spiritual status and standing right now. And he wants you to know if that's what's going on in your spirit, he wants you to know that he wants a relationship with you. That, that he wants you to know him in this personal, intimate, yes, it saves your soul, and one that helps you walk for eternity with Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't have that relationship, and you don't have that eternal outcome. And God's trying to get your attention and saying, I want you to know that I want this relationship from you. I want this relationship with you. But notice after Paul thanks the Ephesians for having this relationship and the encouragement that comes from that, he then begins to pray for them. He he prays for something for them. Look at verse 17. Uh, I said it was kind of the core and the center of this particular prayer. He prays this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul prays that God would give them a knowledge of God, of him. And notice how he describes God at the very beginning. He says in this verse that this is the God of the Lord Jesus, the Father of glory. Can you comprehend who this God is in your own strength? Can you comprehend the magnitude and the majesty and all the things that we just worshiped God about? Can you do that in your own spirit? The answer is no. And not because God has had a problem in revealing himself to us. Not because God is is himself hard to understand and, and unclear about who exactly he is. The problem isn't on his side of things. The problem is that we are darkened in our own understanding of who he is. Ephesians 4 helps clarify this. Ephesians 4.18 says, We are darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to the hardness of heart. It's not that God isn't clear about who he is. We have been darkened and have a misunderstanding heart. We have a, a heart that doesn't want to know him. The problem is that we are darkened in our, heart, in our understanding. And it's our hearts that are hard and calloused. It's not that God hasn't revealed fully who he is. 
until, until you get to be called one of the ones who've been redeemed, one of the ones who've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then you have light restored. This, this light of salvation becomes clear to us and we can see who Jesus is. And, and at that moment, our hearts are transformed and that darkness no longer exists. And we have the light to be able to see clearly who God is. That's what happens at salvation. And Paul's praying here and he says, I pray that you would know this God in this way, and it's going to take me praying for you to get there. You're not going to be able to do this on your own strength. The revelation about what Paul is going to tell us about who God is in this passage, you can't get it on your own. You have to appeal to God and say, God, please reveal it to me. Reveal what? Reveal what? Well, Paul prays and he says that you would have a knowledge of him. If you have your Bibles and it's paper, circle that. If it's on your phone, highlight it. Knowledge of him. That's the core of the prayer. That we would have a knowledge, a firm grasp, a, a seizing completely who he is. Not just intellectual facts, not just even understanding, but something beyond that intellect that leads to intimacy. When you look in the Bible and you see the word knowledge, it's actually a very common word. It appears in the Bible 1,600 times. So we have a lot of page space to go and explore to really understand what does he mean when it says knowledge of him? What does it mean to, to know someone, to know God in this way? What exactly is he praying for? Well, as we begin to see here, uh, the understanding of what the word knowledge means, you're going to see it's far more than just the facts in your head. In the Old Testament, the word knowledge is introduced at the very beginning, actually, where we see here that there is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what we understand from this tree of knowledge of good and evil is that it's more than just a tree that gives you intellect. It's more even than a tree that gives you moral values. It's, it's more than that. And it's actually the, the tree that introduces sin into the world. And so there's, there's something going on here about this knowledge that is, that is more than just the category of intellect. When you explore the word further, we see that the Hebrew understanding of knowledge was, was something that was very complete. So we know that God chose a people for himself through Abraham, and he chose the Israelites. And these Israelites, they had a worldview and an understanding of man that said that if you had the knowledge of something, that you would know them heart, soul, and mind. That it was the totality and the completeness of your person that would, be, that would be able to understand it. And by the way, you couldn't pull those things apart. In our Western world, world view of things, we, we, are very, uh, uh, we are able to categorize very specifically and pull apart. But the Hebrew mind would have never pulled these things apart. They would have said, you can't just know something intellectually. You know them also in many other ways, heart, soul, and mind. And so to know something is to know it with your whole being, which is why the marriage relationship is often revealed as one, two individuals in the covenant of marriage. They know, know each other and they talk about it in the intimacy of these two individuals having their lives wrapped around each other in totality. 
Actually, this word is, is conceptually even helped by a definition from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3 tells us a little bit about this knowledge in this way. It says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. What's going on here is is a description that says that Israel's failure is not a ritual behavior failure. It's a refusal to respond to God's choosing and obedience to him. What we find in that text is that only a fool refuses to respond to God's revealing of himself in this way. And so a person who does not respond in obedience has an incomplete knowledge of God. So this knowledge, it's, it, it's this complete thing, and it involves relationship and fellowship and concern and experience. So I want to introduce somebody to you that you know. Who is the most recognized person in the free world? Who would be a, who is the current leader of the free world? You know who he is, right? I brought his picture today. Do you know that man? That's President Biden, the leader of the free world, the most, the, the most recognizable individual of the world. And I could tell you that I know him. I know who this man is, but, but I want to contrast it with another man that I know. Here's the picture of him. That's my dad. That's my dad. And while I could say that I know President Biden, when I say that I know my dad, there's a difference, right? Like, like I know a little bit about the facts. I could go do some Wikipedia research about who the individual is over here. I could get his birthday and all sorts of interesting facts about him, but I don't know what makes him, what makes him happy. Like I know what makes my dad happy. I don't know what makes him mad. I don't know what makes him sad. I don't know what makes him tick on the inside, but I know this about my dad. I know these things because we have an intimate relationship. We have this relationship that has had time together and has been, has had times where we revealed things to each other so much so that when I need the third picture up here, when, when we, when we get together, We just have this relationship that just kind of knows how to work together, knows how to be together, knows how to... I know all sorts of things about my dad. And even as I just tell you, I could tell you a little bit about him. Like my dad, like you haven't learned to walk until you've joined the Marv Newell School of Walking. You walk fast, you walk directly, you don't stop for anything, you just keep going. That's my dad, okay? You don't know that my dad, my siblings, we, we talk about my dad and, and, and kind of the animal that represents him is the giraffe, giraffe. And you think, giraffe, why would you guys say that? Well, that's because we know him and you don't, and I'm not telling you why. <laughs> that's for me and my dad, not for you guys. You see, I, I, I know him because there's relationship and fellowship, and concern, and experience, and we spent time together. And this is the knowledge that Paul is praying that we would have with our Heavenly Father. And he says, I want you to have this knowledge. It comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through Jesus Christ. This knowledge is mediated through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 7, it says this. It says, If you had known me, 
you would have known my father. This is Jesus's words. He's speaking and he says, if you know me, Jesus, you would have known my father. Uh, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do not know, you, ha- you do know him and have seen him in me. And then later it says in John 17, verse three, it says this about eternal life. And this is eternal life that they know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, the access to know the Father is through Jesus Christ. And and what we're going to do in eternity, many people think, wow, it's just going to be a lot of boring time up there. I don't know what we're going to do. You're going to get to know God more and more and more. And listen, if you've had any journey of getting to know God even a little bit in this life right now, you know how sweet and awesome and great heaven's going to be. This knowledge comes through Jesus Christ, and it's not merely based on observation and speculation, but it's the result of an experience with Christ. It's a result of having a relationship with Christ, of being obedient to him, and creating this fellowship and loving his holiness and his character and who he is, and so you want more. Now, some of us have a problem because it says right here that comprehend that know that God wants to have an intimate relationship with you and you're not very good at intimate relationships. I would suggest to you that that's actually where we all kind of begin, that we have to learn this thing called relationship and we have to learn what that is. We have to learn that intimacy is developed when we move past facts to understanding which is why I believe Paul prays in this passage for these two things in verse 17. He prays for a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation. By the way, he's talking about the spirit within you, the attitude that you would have. He's praying that the attitude inside yourself would be one that says, it's not enough to know the facts about God. It's not enough just to be able to memorize the Wikipedia page about God. I want to know beyond that to a place of understanding. So I'm praying for a spirit of wisdom. Wisdom's beyond facts. It's experience, knowing the skill of how to live in relationship with him. I'm praying for that. And by the way, even beyond that, I'm praying that you would have a second gift, that you would have the gift of revelation, the spirit of revelation. I'm praying that you would move past understanding and into intimacy in your relationship with God. Say, well, how does revelation reveal intimacy? Well, this is true in all relationships. This is true in your relationship with your kids. It's true in your relationship with your spouse, especially. It's true in your relationship with others around you. There's just a simple principle of relationship that you need to know. And that's this. Disclosure is relationship gold. Disclosure is relationship gold. If you want to move past superficial and down to authentic and then pass authentic and down to transparent and then beyond transparent to vulnerable, it's going to cause you to need to be self-revelatory to that person. If you want intimacy in your marriage, you're going to have to disclose yourself and what's going on on the inside of you to your spouse. That's what brings intimacy in relationship. Now I'll tell you, I had, the, I had a long road to learn this one. I was married for about one year and I, after being married to one year, I had this beautiful, wonderful wife. She's awesome. We had, I mean, it was such a gift that God gave her to me, right? And after a year of marriage, I was kind of like, I don't know if I like this married thing. I don't know, if the, I, like I'd rather be a little closed off 
And I feel that this, this blending together of lives into this intimate knowledge thing is really difficult. I don't know if I like it. At the end of a year of marriage, I was kind of like, I think I'm done with this. Because it was so scary to me. And I was so immature in my understanding of intimacy that it was kind of like, I don't know if this is worth it. So let me tell you this. We've been married for 23 years. And it's completely worth it. The greatest earthly gift that I have, the greatest earthly treasure that I have is my wife. And you learn that over time as you move past facts, past understanding, and into intimacy. Knowledge isn't something that you're ever graduating from. It's something that grows continually and more deeply day by day. And so we have to pray for this from God. We can't get it on our own, so we have to pray for it. Pray for the gift Gifts that lead to intimacy with God. Pray that you would go beyond duty and, and work and into delighting in the relationship with God because you have the, the gifts of the spirit of wisdom and revelation being worked out by the Holy Spirit into your life. Pray for these, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and ask God for that relational goal of disclosing himself to you. He's done it, by the way, in this, but as you experience it more and more, you grow to that place where you're like, this is awesome. This is the greatest gift I could ever have. This is the greatest treasure that I could pursue. This intimate relationship with God. We should pray for that. Should we pray for that? Do you think that that would be an important thing to pray for? Why you know what? Let's pray for that right now. Right in your seat right now. We can't go past this. Take a moment and bow your head and just personally before the Lord pray. Pray these things. I know that the scripture says you're a father of glory. Would you re reveal that to me? Would you give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that I would have a knowledge of you? Tell him you don't want to just know him superficially. Tell him that you want to know him in a way that creates intimacy. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I would encourage you to pray this for yourself and to pray it every day this week. And then pray it for those your heart is burdened that they would know him too. We're on a year of living sent. Our theme for the year is understanding that we've been sent to help other people who have this knowledge of God as well. And so pray for yourself and then pray for the people who desperately need to know him. They might be far from him right now. They might, might want nothing to do with him right now, but you start praying for that. And that God, God's going to answer that prayer and he's going to break down their, their defenses and he's going to reveal himself to them as you pray. So we are called to comprehend, first of all, that God wants an intimate relationship with us, but there's a second thing he wants us to pray for. We want to pray to comprehend that God calls you to see him clearly. So first of all, you got to know something with your head, but to know it, you're going to have to see something with your eyeballs. Notice what it says here as we continue in this prayer in verse 18. Paul says, I pray that you would have this knowledge of God, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. 
having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's a little bit strange. Because when I think about the heart, I think about this thing in my chest that's pumping blood through it. And I go, it has eyeballs? What? And Paul's using a mixed metaphor to help us understand something that is very important here in all of this. He's talking about the heart, not as the organ that pumps blood, but scripture, when it talks about heart, actually talks about it as the real you, the authentic individual, the one that you might hide from those around you. But if they truly knew you with intimacy, they would know the totality of all of these things. So Paul is praying that the totality of who you are would be able to see, see some things about God, know some things about God. And the text says that these eyes of your heart, they can be opened and shut. I'm praying that they would be enlightened. I'm praying that they would be able to see more clearly because something has covered over them so they're not seeing properly whatever these eyes of the heart are. They're not able to see. They're becoming blind. And so I'm praying that these things would be enlightened, that you would be able to see them. When we're darkened, by the way, is when we stumble blindly through life, making dumb choices and and falling into sinful patterns, breaking God's law, ending upside down in the the ditch of life. That's, That's what darkened eyes result in. So I praise God that somebody is teaching us to pray for something different because I don't want to end up there upside down in the ditch, right? He's praying that you wouldn't end up there because the eyes of your heart have the light of God shining into them and there's nothing that's blocking it. It means here that it's possible to physically be able to have 20-20 vision and yet be blind to God's light. Now that's something that scripture talks about in other places too. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is teaching and it says this, In verse 13, he says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. They don't comprehend, even though they see, they see with physical eyes, but they, they don't see, they don't see with their heart eyes. Is that possible? Do you know how this feels? Do you ever feel this in your life? There's actually an incredibly tragic example of what this looks like in Scripture, in the character of Judas. Now, Judas was one of the 12 disciples that were chosen by God to work closely with him and learn how to be apostles to carry his message forward. And Judas got the greatest opportunities in the world to be with Jesus everywhere that he went and to get to know him, spend more time with him, have more opportunity to have this intimate knowledge with him than most of us could ever have. He had the physical life of walking with him for three years. And in those three years, he saw with the eyes of his mind, but not with the eyes of his heart. And it resulted in him selling Jesus and killing himself. His eyes were so dimmed that he walked with Jesus all of those years and saw all of those amazing things and missed it. I mean, this is scary. You think about this. Judas, when he went out on the mission trips, 
with all the other apostles. He could do everything else the other apostles did. There was no report like, wow, 11 of them are really good preachers, but there's one of them that's just a dud. There's no report that, that Judas couldn't perform the miracles that they performed. There was no, no, mirror, no report that says Judas couldn't cast out demons that the others couldn't. There was no report that says he didn't heal even though everybody, all the other apostles did. Think about it. There would have been reports of that if that were true. And so Judas is able to walk alongside Jesus, do all of these amazing things in the power of Jesus, and yet be completely blind in the eyes of his heart to who Jesus is. And that po that's possible today too. John tells us that when the woman poured all that expensive perfume over his feet, that he was like, ah, oh, we could have given that to the poor. And then John says in the Holy Spirit, he said that because he was keeper of the money bag and he was a thief. For three years, he walked with Jesus and loved money more than the glory of Jesus Christ. And my fear is that that's possible for you and I today. That there's a lot of people going to church who need the eyes of their heart enlightened lest they live a life like Judas. So what does, what does he want us to see? What is Paul praying for? What's he praying that we would see to have our light, eyes enlightened to be able to see there? He says three things, actually. He tells us in these verses that we would have the hope to what you are called enlightened in your mind. He wants us to see the hope of God's, God's calling. Now, hope in the scripture doesn't, talk, we don't, doesn't use hope the way we do today. Like, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon so I can go outside. It may or may not happen, right? When the scripture says the hope of something, it's talking about the confident assurance and certainty of something. And so the literal definition is expectation, looking forward with confidence to that which is good or beneficial. That's biblical hope. And he's saying, I want you to have that in your understanding of the calling that God has made on your life. All those spiritual blessings in the first run-on sentence at the beginning of the chapter, he's saying, I want you to have a knowledge of all of those things. I want you to know that God's calling you to that. And oh, by the way, when God calls, it's effectual. That's a theological term that says that those whom God chooses and he calls, they respond in faith to him. What do they respond to? They respond to the hope of the spiritual blessings that are in that list. This is what you are responding to when you believe in Jesus, that, that you have every spiritual blessing, including being chosen in Christ and predestined to be adopted as sons and be recipients of his grace, having been redeemed through his blood to get the forgiveness of sins, that you would have wisdom and understanding and that God's plan would be made known to you and you would know it and understand it because you're chosen and predestined and included in Jesus Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit and given the earnest of the Holy Spirit, is that not something you can put your hope in? Your confident assurance that when I'm in Jesus Christ, this is what I have. Is it not worth spending time reviewing that over and over in the eyes of your heart to be able to see the beauty of what that is? It is because it gives you assurance that when you have this kind of hope, it results in assurance, the confidence that you are in relationship with God and that you're in his family. If you don't have that confidence here today, 
Pray for this knowledge of the hope of the calling for that because it will combat insecurity. It will combat you thinking, I'm not good enough to be in God's family or I've done too many bad things. I couldn't possibly be loved by a God. So you should know the hope of your calling. Here's the second thing. He wants you to see the riches of God's inheritance Notice after the hope of God's calling, he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He wants you to know the inheritance that you are to him and that you've received from him. Pastor Jerry did such a great job last week of unpacking this inheritance that that is both something that we become as we join his family, but something that we have as a result of salvation. And the question is, is it worth it? And if it's worth it, what do we do with it? And I'll tell you this, your inheritance from God, the one who owns all things and created all things, it's not a pittance. It's completely worth having that inheritance. It's the greatest thing you could possibly have. And the reason he's given it to you is so that you could enjoy it. That you would enjoy, that you would have this confident hope and and the knowledge that you have this inheritance coming so it changes how you live right now. How does it change it? I think about that cartoon where it was Scrooge McDuck. Anybody remember Scrooge McDuck? And what's his favorite thing to do? But sit on that pile of gold coins and take diving lessons off of it. He was enjoying his wealth. And listen, while it's materialistic and we shouldn't follow Scrooge and all of those things, it does illustrate something for us. You have an inheritance that you can start to enjoy right now. It can change your perspective of what life is because you know you have it. It's guaranteed. And so I live differently now as a result of it. Here's the third thing he wants you to know. He wants you to see the greatness of God's power. He says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know the hope of your calling, the riches of your inheritance, and then look at verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his grace, great might. Power is mentioned four times in this verse, and it's using four different Greek words. In other words, Paul wants you to know about the power available to you. He's praying that you would know this in an intimate way. And so he emphasizes it four different ways in one verse. He says, I want you to have courageous power. I want you to have dynamite power. I want you to have energy power. I want you to have muscular strength power. And the point is, I want you to know God is all sufficient. He's sufficient for everything that you need. You are never without power when your life is in Jesus Christ. The problem is we are gripped by fear. We're paralyzed by inadequacy. We get insecure. We feel powerless But Paul is saying, there's good news. Pray for this. When you feel those things, it is an indicator that you need to get back to this verse and pray for it. God, would you please, would you show me the immeasurable greatness of your power towards me? Uh, Because I believe in you according to the working of your great might. Would you please show me this now? And what do you think God's going to answer? He's going to say, yes, yes. 
And you have it in you if you have Jesus Christ. That's what the next verses say. The next verses actually tell us that, that you, you have this. So, so you need to know this. You need to know that, that you have the power that raised Jesus from the dead. You have Christ's resurrection power. The power that exploded when he rose out of the tomb. You have the power of Christ's enthronement. It says not only that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, but that he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. You have the power of Jesus Christ being enthroned on the throne in heaven. Not only that, you have the power of Christ's supremacy. He says, far above all rule, rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put them all under his foot. He made them their footstool. What he's saying here is, every power that you can conceive of in your consciousness is under his feet. He is supreme over all of them. So notice here, it tells us that, that there's far above the rulers, authorities, and powers and dominions. He's talking about the dark forces of this world that he refers to in Ephesians chapter 6 in just a moment. He's saying that Christ is supreme over all of that. And then he says above every name, there's no identity of a person or individual or being that is greater than him. And then it says not only in this age, so he's over time, but also in the one to come. So he's over eternity. That's the power of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And it's all accessible to you in him. So that's the third thing. And then it talks about Christ's headship, that he is the rightful ruler over all things. Notice he says that he put all things under his feet and he gave him his head over all things. He's head over all things. He has the authoritative power over everything. God's power is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what he wants you to see. And when your life has gotten to a spot where you are weak and anemic and you don't actually believe that you can live the Christian life, and does anybody get there? Am I not the only one that gets there? Somebody else get there? Somebody quick, raise your hand. I'm not, whew, thought I was the only one for a while. When I feel like I'm being overcome by the world, the flesh, the devil, these are some verses that I need. And not just need to know them intellectually, but I need to pray through these verses so that I get that experiential knowledge that is this intimacy with the facts of what these things are that change how I live. That's what it means to have the eyes of my heart enlightened. Do you need that? Do we all need that a little bit? Okay, a lot of it. Yeah. Why do we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened? I would say this. It's because the whispers of this world blur and blind us. And those whispers repeat over and over and over. And they start to clog my spirit And even though I've been given this new heart of flesh within me, there's this film that begins to cover over into a spot where I can't see it clearly. And I begin to wonder and doubt and I struggle. I'm in despair. And 
the whispers of the world form cataracts over the eyes of our hearts. A cataract is a clouded lens. When you have a cataract, you need to have surgery to remove the natural lens that has become clouded for numerous reasons and have the doctor replace it with a clear lens on your eyeball. Praise God for the miracle, modern miracle and medicine that allows that to happen. But it helps us understand what needs to happen when my life is being blurred and blinded by all the anxiety that's in my life. And when I let that anxiety start to have a voice that gets louder and louder, my heart starts to get crusty. And I don't believe God as fully as I know even I should. Maybe like Judas, when I love money so much that it becomes the God of my life, the reality is I say that I love Jesus, but everything about me, I spend more time thinking about money than I think about Jesus. Now listen, money's not wrong and it's not bad, but when your heart begins to become enamored with it because the poison of this has entered into you, so then now it's pumping and it's wanting everything that comes from that, it's a heart that's become clouded. Probably one of the most difficult things that we have is never out of reach in this world today. 20 years ago, when you took biology class, they didn't say that there was a phone attached to your hand. But now we don't let it out of our reach, right? And, and it's easy just to start scrolling and suddenly you're not there. Not really. And I struggle with this, right? And the whispers of what this tells me about what I should look like and what I should buy and what I should have and what I should be begins to cloud me and it forms this cataract over my eyes. So I don't see clearly about what Jesus is saying. And suddenly my life is pursuing everything in this direction. And suddenly when I'm worshiping and people around me are singing and their arms are in the air, I'm kind of like, why are they doing that? And when I read scripture and God's word and I get to these amazing truths about who God is, I find that nothing happens inside me. I'm not affected. Listen, if your heart is not affected by the worship of God and the word of God, something needs to happen. Something needs to happen to the eyes of your heart. They need to be enlightened and you need to be on your knees desperately praying for it. God, please remove the cloudiness and bring clarity to my life so that the crusty, hard heart that's anemic in me becomes soft and responsive and tender and alive to you again. Lord, would you give me the spirit of wisdom and of revelation to have the knowledge of you? God wants to do that surgery on you. And when that surgery happens, you will repent. You will repent of listening to the whispers of this world you will begin to live differently, saying, I'm not going to let those things in. I'm going to build some things differently so that I don't get, my heart doesn't get hard to the Lord. I mean, would you, 
Make that part of your prayer this week. God, open the eyes of my heart. Please break the spell of the whispers of the world in my life and let me repent and believe in you. I don't, want to re- I don't want to believe the lie that there's no hope and that the world is uncertain, so I have to lie in bed depressed in despair because I think you're not for me. I want to stop believing the lie that God is not good and, does, and gives good things and that he's a bad father, and I want to believe that, that this is the God that wants an intimate relationship with me. I want to stop believing the lie that God is weak and that the world is more powerful and that I have to live in fear and I have to fight for myself. I want to repent of those things and I want to pray for faith in Christ to open my eyes to know his calling and his inheritance and his power and all the intimacy that comes from those things. That's what Paul is praying that we would comprehend. That God wants this intimate relationship with you, that he wants you to see with enlightened eyes. And then one last thing, God wants you to comprehend that God calls you to participate fully with Jesus Christ. That's the end of his long sentence here. Pick it, pick it up halfway through verse 22. He says that he's given head over all things to the church. Do you see that at the end of verse 22? The head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God wants you to comprehend that he's calling you to participate with Christ fully in his church. Three quick observations from this verse. One, the church is the body of Christ. That's what it says, that he gave overhead over all things to the church, which is his body. Super simple, but let me just emphasize this. The church is a body, it's not a building. When the, when the New Testament refers to the, the church, it never refers to a building. It always refers to it in an anatomical form. We are the embodiment of Christ in the church. The church is Christ's body. Here's the second thing, observation. Christ fills all in all. Which I just got to admit, I was a little confused. Like, what? It's kind of a weird sequence of words. What does that mean? The grammar is, actually helps us understand that it means that Christ is now filling for himself all in all. He's the one that's doing the filling. We don't fill, he fills. It means this, that Jesus is filling every sphere of existence everywhere in the universe as he pleases. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that in Ephesians 4, when, G, when, when it's written... 4, 8 to 10 to say, it says, when he ascended on high, he led the hosts of captives and gave, the, gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might, here it is, that he might fill all in all. So Christ he, he descended in death, he rose to life, he ascended and he broke the bonds of death and captured for himself a host, that's us, that's the church, and he set us free from sin and death and fear. Why? Why did he do all of that? Christ's purpose was so that he would fill all things with his resurrection power and knowledge. And the filling of all of this is done with the authority of Christ as the head, the risen ruler, that's what it's saying in our verses, in verses 20 to 23, we see Christ's resurrection described, his exaltation over all things described. He's raised and enthroned and subjects all things to himself. He's given universal power and authority as head of the church, which means the church is his body. That was the first observation. And, and then the church has Christ's authority that fills everything everywhere 
so that maximum renown and splendor is known about who God is. And he does that through the church. So observation number three, the church is the fullness of Christ. He's the fullness by which he fills all things. I mean, this is almost boggles the mind that Jesus, we understand, he can fill everything everywhere with his power. We get that. But what it's saying is that the church is the fullness by which Christ is filling all things. It almost takes your breath away. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, that through the church, the manifold wisdom, the multifaceted, every angle of God's wisdom would be revealed to the heavenly rulers and authorities. This is amazing. The wisdom of God has many sides and it's being known to the rulers and authorities, not just here on earth, but throughout the galaxies. And he's doing that through us. The satanic forces of evil know the glory of God because of the church. Because Christ fills all in all through the church. That's those who believe in Jesus Christ and have this intimate relationship with the Father. God aims to fill the universe with his glory, with the glory of his son by making the church the showcase of his perfections. He's going to fill the whole universe with believers. He wants every nook and cranny, every dark place to have the light of who he is through believers, through the church, making him known in that place. Do you want to be that? Do you want to be that kind of church? How do we answer the call on our lives to do that? Well, the answer is pray for an intimate knowledge of God that reflects his glory. Pray for this knowledge of God that has been prayed for throughout this whole chapter. Pray for this understanding of Jesus Christ and his, his calling and the inheritance and his power that, that we would make that known everywhere. Pray that we would reflect God's glory to the glory of God as written in our church. Pray that that is what would be revealed, that our lives would represent that in that way. That's what we're called to comprehend. To comprehend that God wants you to know him intimately, to see him clearly, and to participate in his church fully. I mean, think about it for a second. What if we were a church that prayed this? What if we got serious about this passage and we begin to pray? Imagine if our intimacy and our clarity and our participation increased to the level of what Paul was praying for the Ephesians? What if we humbly admitted that we don't know God like we should? That we would put aside spiritual arrogance and say, I'm still learning and I need to know more. What if we prayed for a spirit of wisdom and revelation that enlightened our hearts? What would that do? How would that change how we lived as we prayed, what if the things that clouded our hearts were removed and replaced with the knowledge of the hope of our calling and the riches of our inheritance and the greatness of his power? What if we were to join Paul in praying for these things for our church? I think I would pray less and the tune and tenor of God, please give me my needs. And more, God, 
show me my needs, the real needs, and please answer in this way. Would you pray differently this week? Would you commit right now to pray differently this week? To pray according to this prayer? To pray for the intimate knowledge of God through the Son, Jesus Christ? Let's pray for that right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the things that Paul prayed for. He said this, ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I've not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give us the spiritual wisdom and insight that we might grow in our knowledge of God. Oh God, we ask for that. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be flooded with light so that we could understand the confident hope that he's given to those that he's called. That we would understand as his holy people what are the rich and glorious inheritance that he's given. God, we also pray that you would help us to understand the incredible greatness of your power for us who believe in you. That this same mighty power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand and in the heavenly realms, that that same power that, he, that shows he's far above any rule or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. Lord, the power that where you have put all things under the authority of him would be made and made him the head would be seen through us, the church. And Lord, would we as the church, your body, represent and mirror the fullness of Jesus Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. God, I pray that you would change how we pray. And in doing so, that you would increase an intimate knowledge of you so that we would see the beauty and goodness of who you are Lord, as we sing of your goodness right now, would you show us, open our eyes, remove whatever needs to be removed. Do that surgery, God, to see you in this full way. Would we worship with intimacy? It's in Christ's name I pray.